Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Bye, Monsanto. I am the legendary Burl Bear. That's Mark C.G. Boyer, fact checker. Supreme. Produced by Magic Matt Allen. A little listening note for you. Wherever you listen to this program, whether it's on iTunes, Spotify, Anchor FM, uh, Owl, or podcast platform, look up the episode Fakes, Frauds, and Forgeries. It's a classic episode that I listened to last night. It consists of famed attorney Don Woldman, myself, and Magic Matt Allen. <laughs> For an hour, our guests didn't show up, and the three of us wreak havoc. I'm <laughs> like the lounge for a solid hour. It is fascinating. Our guests go up. It is no. That never happened. No. Fascinating, informative, and Matt just lights into me like, "You big dummy!" <laughs> it's a great show. Woolman is fantastic. Sometimes I forget what a brilliant man he was. Great guy too. Anyway, it's a great episode. You'll enjoy listening to it. Today we uh, we are blessed. Dave Larson. David Larson's calling in. Is he called in yet, Matt? He's there, David. Yeah. Oh. Welcome back. Has he ever been here before? Yes, he has. When was that? Well, it was a it was a few years ago when we interviewed him about for chapter uh, volume one of the story. Really? The early years. This goes to show him how senile I've become. Uh, David and I are both loved by the same woman. Did you know that? Um, what uh, the Madam Flowers? <laughs> you know, Kathy Scott. <laughs> Kathy Scott, the famous true crime writer, loves both of us. And so I know he's good because she raves about him. Uh, pleasure to have you on the show, David. The last the last Jewish last Jewish gangster volume two has come out so people could now own both of these brilliant works. And I gotta tell you, if I was a movie maker or a TV executive, this following pitch that I'm about to read is one of the all-time best ones I've ever read. You ready for this, ladies and gentlemen? A retired hitman, the godson of Bugsy Siegel, gets a call about an unfinished 40-year-old contract. He must set Christ aside, get a gun, and make a cross-country trip with his bitter mother, jaded daughter, sweet granddaughter, and unwitting wife as his accomplice to complete the hit within 90 days. If you can't sell that, you can't sell anything. <laughs> that is one of the best pitches I and it's true. That's a true story, isn't it? Um, that 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 one is stretched a little bit. Just a little bit. That, that that's a TV. That that's made for episodic TV. No kidding. Or a feature yeah. film, one of the two. Yeah. Uh, this guy had a rough life. Our last Jewish gangster. I don't know how Jewish he is by the last. <laughs> but talk about a bad life. Uh, as we mentioned before, apparently, on the show, but for those who didn't know, uh, tell us uh, briefly the tragic circumstances uh, into which he comes into the world. Well, he's being the God, godson of Bugsy Siegel uh, because that's who his mother ran with. Uh, she she was even set up by Bugsy to get a screen test out in Hollywood in the year, in 1943 during the war. 
and she went out there, tested well, but the studio said, we have plenty of redheads in the contract, thank you very much. She went south to San Diego to visit her aunt, and uh, she met her first cousin, Roy Brooke, big strapping, dark-haired uh, sir, and got a little too friendly with him, and uh, Michael Hardy was born nine months later. And uh, she didn't want anything to do with her son. He was a young so inconvenience. Yeah, she dumped him on her parents to raise her mother, um, uh, her, fa- her father, a Southern Baptist, and her mother, a Ukrainian Ashkenazic Jew. And she continued running with the mom, and her son was left to be raised by her dad and her mother. So was he raised uh, in the Southern Baptist tradition? No, he was. He he got his bar mitzvah at 13 years old, but that's about the last time he really had anything. He, his grandfather died when he was 12, and uh, mother would not let him even go to the funeral. Oh. And that's the first time uh, Michael tried to commit suicide. Yeah, she she was she was a pretty hard woman. All, all she wants, she runs two cases full of dirty money to Havana for Meyer Lansky. Uh, she handed out payoffs to dirty judges, cops, and politicians. In Brooklyn, they come by her she, and hand it to them. Make the operation in New York. And she just didn't have the time to date for her son. So he has sort of, some sort of connection to his mother. To give notice and to hopefully that she would admire him, like him, and hopefully love him. In um, 1990, a month before she died, she was um, she was living in La Jolla, California, in um, really bad shape from diabetes. And he finally had uh, that moment where he sat down with her, just the two of them, nothing else going on. Tell me, mother, why? Did you give him an answer? She didn't have a real good answer for him, so he could never really get closure. I mean, in the early 70s, he did 14 hits for the mom, hoping that she would notice him and be proud at least. Wow. This isn't the first time we've heard a story where the individual involved is doing what they're doing to impress a parent. Your favorite diamond thief yep, uh, wanted to impress his deal. father. Yeah. Um, we had uh, a world, uh, was it a middleweight champion? Mm-hmm. Who was only going through the agony of, bo- of boxing to impress his father. Yeah, that respect and that love, admiration, so important. When the uh, roll of the, yeah, roll of the boulder up the hill. Yeah. Uh, Sisyphus? Yeah. The schmuck who was doing that? Yeah. Well, because it wasn't Atlas. He was holding up the world. That's not an easy gig. <coughs> yeah, this, this young man, Michael Hardy, really took it to extremes. I mean, can you imagine killing people for the mom to impress your mother? And she wasn't, she wasn't impressed. It wasn't enough. No matter how many people he killed, it wasn't enough to impress his mother. Well, he took 
in the, in the in the second book, he ends up taking his mother's wrap for counterfeiting in Mexico. She took she got four thousand dollars of bad ten dollar bills, and she thought the fastest way to cash them in, plus those stupid Mexicans wouldn't notice, huh. was at the Caliente racetrack, and she uh, they spent sixteen days in the Tijuana jail and. She just begged him, Michael, I can't do the time. I'll come visit you. I'll send you money. I'll do anything. So he agreed. He told the Secret Service, part of the Treasury Department, that those are his dollars. And he was set to do 12 years in prison in the world. He ended up going to work for a gay drug lord, which he said, he said there could be no way they'd have anything like that in Brooklyn with the mob. But a gay drug lord and his, his gringo piece of and he killed three people during his time in there, Stay, trying to stay alive. Wasn't the first person he killed, uh, a fellow came, uh, busted in the room, and he... Uh... Yeah, he took a buddy down there. He decided to rob a couple Americans, and he had a 25 with him. He shot him in the chest. That slowed him down. Yeah, quite a bit. This, this prison, you talk about movies, this prison is like un, anything on the planet. There's a report that it's the most entrepreneurial prison in the world. Meaning what, entrepreneurial? A lot of business being done out of there? Oh, you could, you could start a restaurant, have a restaurant in there. <laughs> you could have a jewelry store. There are 800 inmates at the time. And um, as long as you gave a kickback to the commandante, you could run a business. Amazing. I was, is there a house of prostitution there for the inmates? No, but the, the gay drug lord that Michael worked for used to bring in prostitutes on weekends. Oh, that's, um, that's good. Well, Tuesday nights, Tuesday nights for, for girlfriends to visit, Thursday nights for wives. For wives. And on Sunday... They would open up the gates to the prison, allow whole families to come in. They have taco carts. They have mariachis. <laughs> Is it really? No. Yes. And, and you could have knives and guns. Well, that's a fair, fair enough. The, the, the interesting aspect, there's so many, so many wild things. If you escape from prison without killing anyone... Your time will continue while you're out of prison. Really? They believe, they believe that it is the nature of man not to be confined. So if you had one year to go on your prison term and you escaped and they arrested you 10 months later, you would come back to prison and do two months and they'd be released. Wow, that's a lot different than here where it has 15 years to your sentence. Oh, yeah. Interesting theory, though. Yeah, it, yeah, it does. It does make sense. I like the whole thing of opening up the prison with the, the carts and the, all that stuff. Mark has to be. Yeah, well, then Whitey Bulger shouldn't be in jail now. <laughs> well, I mean, he was gone <laughs> for 30, like, 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, he was gone long enough that he has, uh, he has credit. <laughs> um, something interesting that I've noticed over the years doing this, uh, uh, this silly show with the imaginary Burl Bear. <laughs> No, he's 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 really an avatar. <laughs> um, that a lot of the 
the dirty work of the Italian mob was farmed out to the Jewish mob. Yes. And I found that fascinating. Uh, they need, I believe they really needed a buffer, and that, that was the whole idea behind Murder Incorporated, Midnight Rose's candy store in Brooklyn. And that's where Michael Hardy's mother used to go when she was 15. Vivacious redhead. She wore those themed stockings. Just trying to impress. And lipstick so thick that it took two handkerchiefs to wipe the kerchief off a man's face. Well, my my family has uh, has some tangential history with uh, the Jewish mob. Uh, mm. Did you ever see the movie Casino? Oh yes. Okay, so there was an accountant uh, in the movie. He was a composite of three individuals. Uh, one uh, person washed the books. Another person managed the books that would go to the government, and one would manage the skim. Okay. Okay, and my uncle was the one who managed the legitimate books that went to the government. And once a month, he would fly out to Miami with the, with the books to go over them with Lansky. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it, you know, it pains me that I just didn't have the wherewithal as a child to recognize the history that was in my family and do something about it. Uh, I, when Howard Hughes took over the Desert Inn, the top floor, uh, my uncle was the go-between that brokered the sale. Wow. There were some connections there. Uh... There's a lot of, uh, of, of stuff that was, was going on in the 50s and the 60s. You mentioned, you mentioned the movie Casino. Well, Nick Pileggi wrote the book, and he co-wrote the screenplay with Martin Scorsese. Mm -hmm. And uh, he talked to Michael Hardy while he was writing the book. Hardy was in prison. And Hardy would tell him, uh, give him some great dialogue, some scenes to use, some things that he participated in. Right. <clears throat> but uh, there, were, there were definite advantages. My brother was a running rebel. Those who don't know, he went to UNLV. Oh, great. And when we would go to Vegas for visits, um, my uncle would arrange for us to stay at the Stardust. Uh, we stayed in suites for free. Everything was comped. If you if if you were <clears throat> ever a visitor to Vegas at the time, um, the staff treated the clientele with much more regard than the corporations do yes, these days. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it was. So uh, what can we do for you, Mr. Boyer, my father? Uh, how you know what shows would you like to go see? Right. Which showgirl would you like to stoop? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Really, really. My my brother was there as a guest one time, and the the showgirls were on stage. And the guy says to my brother, "You see, see one there you like." <laughs> now be careful here, Mr. Burl Bear, because my uncle yeah. married one of those show 
girls. Oh. Girls. Yes. She was a tangential member of the Rat Pack. Yes, very tangential. <coughs> uh, well, yes, very tangential, as she says. Um, so she was. She knew all of the uh, all of those individuals and spent many years with Dean Martin in his television show. I'll tell you something. Uh, you'll you'll appreciate this, David. I used to do the advertising and promotion for the Aladdin Hotel. And when uh, uh, Hoffman disappeared, then they were looking for the body. And I, I happened to be there at the Aladdin. I'm having lunch in the, kind of the employee's room. And and I was speaking a little to I said, well, you know, I said, uh, you know, it occurs to me that Hoffman's probably under the foundation stone of the Aladdin Theater for the Performing Arts because he disappeared at the same time they laid the foundation stone. And the guy I'm sitting across her breaks out in a sweat like you wouldn't believe <laughs> And he's going, say you're joking, say you're joking. <laughs> so I said, oh, of course, I'm just joking. You know, no, never, you know, he's probably under, a, you know, home plate in Dodger Stadium or something. And then the, the room quiet, you know. I didn't notice that the entire room had become dead quiet once I said that. <laughs> oh, that's true. Did he well, ever, did he ever reconcile, um reconcile his mother trying to keep him out of the business with his attempts no. to gain her approval? No, he, uh, she gave him no guidance whatsoever. She was just happy to get rid of him, like when he went in the Army. Well, you know, it seemed to me that she was more interested in him not being a part of this life and her her approach to that was, don't associate with me. Now, was she, wasn't she running the largest book in New York at this time? Yeah, yes, she was. And Hardy wanted new collections for her. Right. So she was going, go away. Don't bother me, boy. Go be normal. Uh, it's the way looking at it. Well, I, I mean, you know, yeah. from all perspectives, not just yeah. his or you as an author, but what was going through her mind? Was she genuinely disinterested in her son, or was she more interested in having him have a normal life? It's, you know, it reminds me of, uh, um, of Marlon Brando grabbing Michael and saying, I never wanted you to be a part of this. Yeah, I don't think she was altruistic at all. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, but that's an interesting, interesting approach. Well, that 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 brings me to uh, a sort of philosophical question: nature. I mean, where did his where does his uh, illegal tendencies come from? was a small-time con man. Uh, his, his mom was just absorbed with everything that was about the mom, starting with Bugs and Siegel. And uh, she continued that way till the day she died. Uh, okay, so, I, I got a question. That, that, feels, that, that feels like it's a combination of both. Yeah, I think that maybe if she had been a certified public accountant and treated him like that, he'd be crunching numbers somewhere. You know, whatever it was she she was into, he figured that if he did that, 
she would accept him. She'd be proud. She'd love him. Yeah. Yeah. And it never worked. He was beating his head against a, a brick wall and a half, and it just wasn't going to happen. And probably somewhere in his heart of hearts, he knew it, but didn't want to face it. But he got so far into it. You know, you can just get oh, so... he got as deep as, deep as you can get. Yeah. Now, as an author, and I am one of those, and this is the part of the show that I have found out that people love the most, tell me how you wrote the book. Well, I, how I met him was interesting. Uh, I read an opening paragraph um, at, a, at a special writer's thing, an opening paragraph slam, and I ended up in first place. I, I read a paragraph about a friend of mine who spent 15 years in California State Prison for an accessory to murder. And uh, I read the opening paragraph and I got a cup of coffee and a book at some bookstore. And a month later, someone contacted me through LinkedIn. Are you the same David Larson that was there? Yes. Well, I have somebody I think you ought to meet. And he introduced me to Michael Hardy. Now, I found out six months later that that man was Hardy's therapist. Hmm. Uh, he was treating Hardy for a huge amount of anxiety because uh, he had a guy in Hollywood that was supposed to be putting together a big book and movie deal for him, and the guy was just a bust. Huh. So I came along and met him. Extraordinary meeting. And um, agreed to meet with him, start meeting with him once a week for a couple hours every Wednesday. And I did that for two and a half years. You two hit it off? You were able to relate to him and he could relate to you? Uh, a little bit. I, I had to practice listen, accept, and encourage. Couldn't challenge him on anything. Uh, a couple times I asked him, geez, in the early 70s, you're, you're getting a million dollar ransoms from kidnapping drug lords. You had to be clearing close to half a million dollars in cash a year. What did you do with it all? Ooh. He don't and like that he, question. No. I, I was looking for, I bought cars, I bought a house, I did something. Nothing. No. Nothing. Nothing. Spend it all. Yep. I, I, same thing. I've had that same conversation and with criminals and it irks him a bit so fast with no accountability in most yep. cases. Uh, with his, uh, with Punch and his dad, uh, the money was used, bought property, bought real estate, bought businesses, and yeah. then they were all robbed by other criminals. <laughs> uh, that's an occupational hazard. But that's one of the few cases where they actually did things with the money. Uh, but in most cases, it's where'd the money go? And it's, you know, out there, they're living in some little, you know, uh, you know Section 8 housing, Where's the millions of dollars? Well, you know, we, uh, we had it. It's gone. <laughs> yeah. I, he, now, when he was younger, oh, my God, did he spend money. He would tip Dorman 100 bucks, Nita D's 100 bucks, waitresses 100 bucks. He, he liked to play the big man on campus. Yep. In the early 60s. The thing is, you get, got shot by the body. you get so used to that. It's like Punch was telling me. That his mom mentioned this. He says he was so used to having millions and having all the money in the world that when he got out of the life of crime and it was the money wasn't there that much anymore, 
it's hard to break that habit. Where you know you're so used to being able to spend like that, and all of a sudden you don't have that cash flow because you're not a criminal anymore. <laughs> it takes too long. It's too hard getting the money in any other way. Yeah. And if you try to go straight, that's very, very difficult. Uh, a friend of mine in the uh, Russian uh, mafia, you know, with the tattoos all over him, I had him on the program, a little coup there to get some from the Russian mob on the show. Uh, and uh, he says, it's very difficult. He says, be the Russian mob, be in America, try to get an honest job. <laughs> you know, what's your history? Well, look here, here's my, here's my CVs on my chest, if you can read it. <laughs> It's, it's very, very difficult. Harvey tried every, almost every time, his first stint in two and a half years in jail at the Borden County Reformatory in New Jersey. He came out, he got a job, um, you know, tr- trying to be, trying to follow the path. And then he, he discovers some money in his shoebox. He's a working security guard. He finds some money in his shoebox in a storage room Looks like somebody been skimming close to twelve thousand dollars in there. He only takes half of it, fluffs up the other money, and then he, as he's as he's driving away, he's going to make him twenty five bucks a week as security guard. And here he is, you know, three thousand dollars that he's going to keep six thousand dollars. He's going to split with a buddy who got him a job, but it just it didn't taste the same. And that uh, he. He learned the witch step in the second book. Uh, he slides shaming the book. Gavano is not uh, saying the right things, and he calls him up looking for a, a little help, a little hand up. So he decides he's going to go to the Fed and fill out an affidavit that uh, Sammy the Bull and Ali Boy Cuomo and Lou Melito were the guys that whacked the unsolved murder of the Dunn brothers. So he signs that, and he put him in Whitsack, flying out to L.A., and Hardy goes to work for a, a B studio out there called Raleigh Studios. Yeah. As, mu- as muscle for the president. He's in the movie business. <laughs> That's not, not much of a stretch to go from criminality to showbiz. <laughs> no. <laughs> At least based on my experience, it's very similar. Uh, it's it's the old joke, you know. How do you say, uh, um, trust me in Hollywood? <laughs> How do you say trust me in Hollywood? With a gun to your head. Yeah. Yeah. Make, uh, yeah, puts Frank Sinatra from here to eternity. From here to eternity. Um... So he go uh, Giuliani eventually gets tired of his butt and throws him in in prison. And he meets somebody there who changes his life. Yeah, he, first, he signs up for a couple classes, an acting class, and he signs up for a German class because he figures at some point in life we're going to fight the Germans again. He wants to be able to speak the language enough, but really the. The instructor is a woman who's married to a to a man that wrote from uh, went to prison for writing a book on um, human sexuality. So he ends up hating the German class. Uh, so he drops out, and he, the only kind of class available is a Bible class. 
So he said, I'll find out what the, all this stuff is about. Bunch of stories. And he meets a man by the name of Jed Banner, who is a uh, maritime union executive that's in, and they just hit it off. Every day they walk the yard together. This is federal prison, so it's not like you don't have gangs and things. This is in the uh, early 70s. And uh, this man really changes his life. He can't believe how calm this man is amidst all the chaos going on. And this guy is a born-again Christian. He starts telling Hardy, there's no Bible. You know? And then uh, becomes his mentor. Hardy gets out of prison, and a few weeks later, he calls up Judd to find out how he's doing. The guy dies from a heart attack. He's just like lost. So how does he end up on a kibbutz? Oh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's oh what a great what a great question. Well Yeah, he got um he got arrested um, um for having weed in his car. Now in the early seventies that was still considered pretty bad. And um so he 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 used an alias uh, when he got arrested, Richard Mandel, but he knew they were going to come down on him. And so he sold everything. He boarded an Icelandic air flight to speak of Germany on July 4th. A lot of things happened to him on July 4th. Like that was the date his mother died, too. Um, but he's flying to speak of Germany. He's sitting around at, at the train station, figuring out, trying to figure out where to go. He'd never been to Europe before. He sees the little black piles clapping above him, you know, different Moscow and Geneva and oh, oh, Paris, Rome and everything. And um, walks up to a window, and a ticket man is just um, speaking gibberish, a bunch of German. And uh, a sort of Jew in the next, in the next uh, line happens to say something, blah, 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 Tel Aviv. He goes, ah, okay, give me a ticket to Tel Aviv. Why not? So he ends up and goes to immigration when he gets to Israel, and they sign him up to a kibbutz. Um, for, those, for those that are not of the tribe, as Pearl and I are, um, a kibbutz is, a, in loose terms, a commune. It's a, a loose collective of individuals working for the shared good of all in the kibbutz. Communism, in other words. Um, <laughs> yeah, but not on a small scale. On a, on a very it's small commie, scale. Pinko, Jews, they're all alike. <laughs> <laughs> so, continue. Yeah, Harley ends up on a kibbutz across from Jordan... Uh, that part of their, it's usually working farms and stuff. This is an olive, big olive ranch. It's hard to round up those damn olives. <laughs> well, uh, they would well, find soldiers well, that would sneak over at night and hide in the, hide in the trees. So they'd spray the trees with bullets in the morning. And every once in a while, a soldier would drop out. 
Welcome to Israel. Now I gotta ask you. You said the uh, the story where he's a retired hitman. He gets a call. You got this forty year old contract. Is that based on truth? Maybe even slightly exaggerated. It's, it's that, that for the screenplay. Yeah. For the uh, TV. Yeah, I, I wrote the pilot screenplay. That's exaggerated. Yeah. But the premise is accurate. Oh yeah. What happened in real life? He. He did 14 hits for the mom. Did he do that one? No. No. But he could have. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a great premise. That really just knocked me out. That that was great. And the, the book, it, it's pretty interesting. The, the, his lawyer, who he tells the story to in, in the books, uh, Jimmy Blatt, who's a member of the tribe up in, up in L.A., uh, Jimmy... Um, just recently took a book and gave it to a well-known Hollywood producer that knows Nick Pelleggi. So, you never know. You never know. It's not one thing, it's something else. Uh, well, yeah. I was gonna, uh, the books, the stories were absolutely fascinating. The guy could be so repugnant that there must have been times when he's telling you these stories that you're going, oh my God. What am I doing here? What has happened to my life? <laughs> How did I wind up in this room? Were there any moments felt, like that? I felt very, uh, for the first few months, when he was telling me what he did, not why he did it, I felt very dirty, like I had to come home and take a shower. And then I changed my mindset and said, okay, this is a story. How do I tell this story so it puts the reader there now just focus on the story, not no matter how how repugnant it is, try to get that across what his experience is like. Yep. You gotta do that. Uh maybe it's just the time uh doing the show. But this is on a scale of repugnant, this is a two and a half or a three compared to some of the other stuff Burl and I have heard on this show um, things that are so abhorrent I don't even want to talk about them yeah um, and I had to write about it and you had to write about it well we've had guests like the boxer we mentioned oh, earlier God, that, was that his his story is so horrible that you you can't you can't comprehend it and he's sobbing while he's telling and he, us the yes, story yeah it was, it was riveting uh and you know what gets me? I don't know if you've encountered this, but you're doing this book, and you're devoting a great deal of time to the research, a great deal of time to the writing, and then the public editing, publishing, etc. Sure. And then someone says to you, you're a bottom feeder. How can you live with yourself making money off the pain and suffering of other people? Well, that was the agreement Hardy and I had. <laughs> it says in the contract, I agree to make money off the pain and suffering of other people. Yeah. No one says that to newspapermen. No one says that to the CBS Evening News. No, no. one says that to Dateline or ID or Oxygen. I just did an episode of Oxygen last week, by the way. But boy, they sure do it to true crime writers. And yeah. it, it pisses me off. I just thought I'd say that. <laughs> just, <laughs> 
Because we sounds like you've gone home many at night just sobbing. Yeah, yeah, crying all the way to the bank with my seventeen dollar yeah. and fifty cent check. <laughs> <laughs> I do better than that, but I've had some months. Where <laughs> uh, well, there's a, there, are, there are certain uh, perks to writing true crime, as you know. Everybody, it's like working for Disney. Every seven years, they put the movies out again. Yeah. <laughs> Every seven years, they put the books out again. <laughs> That's one of the blessings. So um, he's he's on the kibbutz. He's learning about his Jewish heritage. Um, did he did he continue his ill 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 botten goody or ill gooten body? Did he uh, continue his criminal activities there, or did he wait to get no. back to the U.S.? No, he didn't. He, he, he uh, committed no crimes. In fact, he did one unselfish thing. He saved a Swiss girl from drowning in the Mediterranean. Wow. Nice. And he swallowed half the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it, it put him, he was in the hospital for quite a while. He had thought of going down. Uh, he knew he heard Meyer Lansky was at a hotel, being kept in a hotel down the beach there, and he met him a dozen times and was thinking of going, but, but he knew the feds were all over the place. They were just waiting to extradite him or pick him up and bring him back to the States. Well, you mentioned uh, Giuliani and the thing about the, the cops. We had uh, Michael Gordine on the show a few times. The... Uh, mm third most corrupt cop in the NYPD. First two being, of course, Ken Urell and Michael Dowd. And he told me, he says, with Giuliani in there, it was open season. You could be as corrupt as you wanted to. You just had to be careful which side of the politics you were on. We were told, do whatever you want, just don't get caught. <laughs> wow. And uh, I thought that was quite revelatory. Uh, yeah. All things considered, but he said no. He says it was great. He says uh, when he came in, it was like call the crooked cops, celebrated. <laughs> we can get away with anything as long as we don't get caught. <laughs> so I think this one one thing was done for PR and, and uh, image, and the other was, hey guys, you know, <laughs> just do what you're doing. Well, that was one of the cl- classic things in the, in the New York uh, criminal history of, of the NYPD. That uh, Frank Gerardo and I discovered in our research is one of the chiefs of police told the officers, if you can't make money with graft and corruption as a police officer, you have no business being on the force. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was like, you know, a qualification. You know, we don't need to pay you a lot. It's like you're going to make more in tips. Yeah. Sure. We had a uh, an individual. Was it was he in Brooklyn or Bronx? Which one? The Chili Pimpin. Oh, that's Michael Gordine. Yeah. Um, yeah. He joined the police force specifically to enhance his criminal enterprise. Right. <laughs> that's why he became a cop. Yeah. Exactly. And when when it became clear that he needed to go. Uh, before something bad happened, he just quietly retired. And apparently, as he puts it, he has so much dirt on everyone above him right. that they just leave him alone. They do. Sure. Yeah. He got stopped a couple times, and he just goes, it's me, and never mind. 
business. Go about your business. Well, it's the same thing with Michael Dowd and Ken Urell. They knew what those two guys were doing, but they didn't want another scandal. It wasn't until they expanded out to Long Island and the Long Island cops busted them that it came out. You know, we got enough scandals. We don't need any more. Just let these guys keep doing what they're doing. It's just, you know, it's just like a turtleneck. The cover-up goes all the way to the top. Yeah. Hi, Ghost Vicky. In addition to your brilliant, uh, this is actually a trilogy. Two of the books are out now. You were, have yeah. you already written the third one, or are you still polishing it up? I'm polishing. Now, I'm fascinated. There's a book you're working on that I will love to read. There's several things you're working on I'd love to read. It's got the greatest title I have read in a long time, The Lamb's Pimp. Uh, a memoir of your own teen years raised by evangelical holy rollers and his escape from their dogma. Wow, you're like, I spent... Uh, Several days with Marjorie Gordner. Do you remember who Marjorie Gordner, the young yeah. evangelist, child evangelist, yeah. Yeah. who made yeah. millions and his parents spent it all? Yeah. yeah. Uh, my, my parents were as conservative, um, they were Lutherans, Minnesota, conservative, Republicans, conservative Christians. Um, and uh, this is an interesting stat. At what age, what age is the safest age in a human's life? Fewer people die at this age than any other age. What's that? Take a guess. 12. Close, 10 years old. Fewer people, childhood illnesses haven't gotten you, you aren't, no testosterone, you know, well. hormones kicking in to do crazy stuff. Uh, fewer people die at 10 years old than they at your, your age. And uh, I, I start that tale about it's supposed to be the safest age, but it wasn't for me. Was it? That's when, that's when Jesus invaded my house. Uh-oh. My parents were, my dad was a major in the National Guard. He was the deacon in the church. Uh, my mother ran the youth program. And he went up to Seattle to visit a cousin. He went to a revival meeting. He got anointed with the Holy Spirit. You know, called him the mother, said, God's alive in me, Elise. I'm coming home. You know, within a year, they were kicked out of the church, and they brought everyone into our house. Started meetings five days a week. What did that do and, to you? amazing thing. I believe that almost anything is possible. And whether you believe it was Christ or whether you believe it was the force that created this happen or some other divine thing, positive, you know, collecting positive thoughts or something, but I saw some people get healed. Pretty interesting stuff. But as a teenager, and then my brother amidst all this stuff. Uh, I was 13, he was 20. We had a missionary lady from South America come stay with us for three months. And she um, enticed him, she was a widow. She enticed him uh, 
and challenged my mom about anything biblical. This guy knew, six women knew the verses dead cold. Her name was Hannah Lowe. And my brother announced one day at breakfast, I'm going to go with Hannah and do the real Lord's work. He had no idea he was joining a cult. And he disappeared in this cult for 12 years down South America. Wow. Was he lucky enough to survive? Yep, he was. You know what's fascinating? What broke the spell? <laughs> he fell in love with a Finnish nurse. <laughs> That'll finish him. Love will do it. A Finnish nurse will do it every time. Yeah. But a young Finnish nurse, he's still married to her. Uh, saw her at a clinic where he took in some, uh, you know, one of his followers for some medical, and he just was smitten by her. Brought her. Um, you know, he came home, he shared with Hannah what was going on. She, oh, no, the devil has taken control of your loins, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And that's when he uh, realized that it, that didn't mean true to him. I don't have a, a problem with religion. I do have a problem with what humans do with it. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> Well, say to your brother, Oma Una Kuli Kalis, which in Finnish means your own home is good as gold. Oh, there's the Finnish well, You know, it's a mitzvah. <laughs> it's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah. <laughs> uh, and you're working on a screenplay for Kathy Scott on her Murder Biggie Smalls? Yeah, I started on that. Wonderful. Kathy Scott's great. One of my favorite oh. people on the planet. I agree. So if she likes she you, you're good enough for me. <laughs> she's telling a story now. Uh, she started on In Rules. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Wow. Yeah, that's that should be absolutely fascinating. Uh, I have my own Ann Rules story. I had a great lunch with Ann in New York. Uh, we were there for the uh, uh, World Mystery Convention, about your con, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she was telling me the story about uh, about Ted Bundy, and she's telling the story with such a fondness and recollection. You know, I took Ted to this dance, and it was the most beautiful girl there with long brown hair parted in the middle. And I kept saying, "Ted, ask her to dance, ask her to dance." And he just got so upset. He kept drinking and drinking. He just got so drunk. I had to take him home and put him to bed. And then, of course, later. When she found out he was, you know, this terrible serial killer, that, oh, yeah. that she looked exactly like all of his victims. So it was his worlds were colliding. You know, they compartmentalized their lives, the serial killer yeah. like that. And here it was colliding, and that was freaking him out. And she's telling the story with such compassion and empathy for poor, poor little Ted. And I finally said, Ann, I said, which Ted was Ted Bundy? The one um, that you're talking about with such compassion or the one who murdered these women and then had sex with their corpses. And she said, the one who has sex with their corpses. Mm. You know, I mean, that's just, you know. And you know, when, the, when he got busted, who did he call? Who was his phone call? Not the Hello. lawyer. Stan. Hey, Ann, have I got a story for you? <laughs> That's true, because she already had a contract. She told Ted, she bragged to Ted, Ted, I got great news. If they ever catch this serial killer, I get to do the book. 
Really? Yeah. So I hope they catch him and I get to write the book. Well, they caught him. He called her. Okay, here's your book. And that was her first book, The Stranger Beside Me. <laughs> the odds of that happening, that's like something out of a movie. Well, Hardy had a run-in with a spirit killer. Uh, in 1883, um, Angelo Bono, the Hillside Strangler, yeah. was in L.A. County Jail. And Hardy almost strangled him to death. Serve him right. Well, there you go. A couple guards had to pull him off. Mm. Yeah, that's the thing about serial killers. You can't reason with them. <laughs> Depends on which person you're talking to, which half of them is the, the, the charming one or the insane one. No, you can't read. Yeah, my daughter has uh, the unfortunate pleasure of having uh, encountered more than one. <clears throat> she, uh, well, she went to school with the Spokane serial killer's daughter in our hometown of Walla Walla. Uh, which is how I wound up writing the book about the Spokane serial killer. The, I wasn't going to because I knew his victims. Uh, the, the first victims were friends of my family, so I just wasn't really want into it, you know. But the publisher said, well, we got a lot of people who want to write the book, but you actually know these people. <laughs> we want you to write it, so I did. But uh, uh, my daughter not only interacted with that one, she stood in line to see Interview with the Vampire with the Green River Killer, not knowing he was the Green River Killer, of course, until sure. uh, he was arrested. The other one is, is uh, there was a fellow who offered her a job, uh, and he was she was supposed to call him to follow up on it, and uh, she did, and someone answered the phone and said, no, I'm, I'm sorry, there's, there's been a, a, a kidnapping. And she said, what, someone kidnapped Mr. So-and-so? No. Uh, he did the kidnapping. When my, when my daughter was talking to him on the phone, he had a young boy uh, handcuffed to the bed. <laughs> Ouch. You know, I'm, I'm not surprised that that your family connects with as many crazies since you're out of your frickin' skull already. That's true. I do not argue with that point. No. Uh, I was brain damaged as a young child, and which turned out to be a blessing, actually. <laughs> uh, it gave me certain abilities far beyond those of mortal men. <laughs> I can't do math, but I can do some other things. But you can, can you leap a tall building in a single bound? Uh, no, but uh, I can see through tall buildings with a single glance. <laughs> uh, that's, that's scary. <laughs> I prefer the imaginary Burl Bear, yeah, personally. So he gets, uh, you know, so he finally finds uh, some semblance of life, and he goes straight. What does he do with his life when he's not being a criminal? Well, he has, he has his when he uh, works construction. But then he, he has an accident on the job, scaffolding breaks, falls two stories. He's okay, but uh, if one of the family, a lawyer, suggests he gets workman's comp and uh, put him in a hospital, pretend he's a lot more hurt than he is, and all of a sudden he's got workman's comp getting paid and he's sitting around doing nothing, and he goes, well, I have to do something. 
So he hooks up with childhood friends and he starts all kinds of scams. Well, you got to do what you know how to do. Right, but at what point does he go straight? And probably when he got out of prison in well, 2000. Now, he, was, he had sepsis of the spine. Uh, this was in the third book. And he's taken by ambulance from Corcoran Prison up near Fresno down to USB, uh, UCSD Medical Center. And they drop him off there in the 17-hour operation months later to scrape it off his spine and put some rods in there. And he gets out of there 10 months later. And he's living in Section 8 housing, barely putting two nickels together. And no crime, but minor scams. Um, calls up Nick Pledgy, and Nick, Nick starts helping him out every once in a while. Give him a $500, $1,000 check here and there to make, help make ends meet. Well, I can't, uh, I can't wait to, to talk to you about your, your upcoming projects and volume three of the story. It's fascinating. Absolutely fantastic. A joy to have you on the show. And I got a couple projects I want to talk to you about on the side. Okay. <laughs> so the book, the books are The Last Jewish Gangster by David Larson. The early years and the middle years. Check them out. They're fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Always fun with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, stand by for Magic Matt Allen in the Demons of Decadence, live from the Light of Lounge on OutlawRadioLive.com. Thank you.